So turn in your Bibles there, because that's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. And as we're going through the book of Revelation, we have stalled out in these seven letters to these seven churches that Jesus is addressing. And we're going to stand because we're going to exalt God's word as greater than his name. He writes that about himself. So let's stand and let's read from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I mean, isn't that kind of nice to know? I mean, you hear that from the Lord? Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you'll have tribulation ten days. Here's the exhortation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And we've got to be overcomers here, team. And so, Father, this morning, as we turn our hearts to your word, Lord, may your word find good soil within each one of our hearts. Lord, that your word would settle in and, and we'd be changed. We'd see things from your perspective and not our own. Lord, help us to develop a real biblical worldview of life, not a worldly worldview. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd pour your spirit out upon us, that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding this morning, that we truly might walk out these doors and and live and walk pleasing to you, just fully equipped for every good work. So bless, please. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, you know, so if you hadn't read ahead, we just read ahead. So what do you think would be a good theme for this church? Smeared in Smyrna? Or slaughtered in Smyrna? Or how about shining for Jesus in Smyrna? Because that's what's happening in this church. Persecution in our country today, for the most part, is the anonymous letter, the anonymous post, the look, the occasional remark, and God forbid, the scathing email. And I don't want to make light of those things, but that's pretty much it in our country today, which is like, I'm not even sure it gets on the baby food level as to what is happening here in Smyrna as John writes this dictation because Jesus is speaking to him. Certainly, certainly if you look around other parts of the world, like where could we start? There's plenty of them where they're being persecuted. But here's the deal. This is written to you and I today. So yeah, it's for Smyrna, but it's also written for you and I today because of verse 11. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So look to your right, which would be that way. Any ears? Not many if you're on the ends. Look to your left. Any ears? 
Yeah, quite a few. Some of the girls might have to go like this. <laughs> Your little hair thing. So this is for us today, team, because we have ears. And God's heart for you and I is that we would hear. That his word would get into us and would change us. And we'd walk out these doors more in love with Jesus than we walked in. So the word is relevant. These letters are so relevant today because of these words right here. Because we have ears. And the Holy Spirit is still speaking today to any who have ears who want to hear. And that's always the issue. God wants to speak, but do we want to listen? I hope so. Because maybe as we go through this, maybe for us, we might just have to suck it up, buttercup, when we get those occasional little things that we really turn into big things. But the reality is you're still alive. In Smyrna, they're being put to death. All around the world today, Christians are being put to death. So maybe those little things that you endure probably aren't, little, aren't really big things after all. So maybe you need to inventory that. Maybe for others of us, it might be to start to pray for the persecuted church. Take, take your pick. Pick your country. And yet for others, it might be to go. I mean, I'm, I'm in that list. I like to go. I like to go to those crazy places. And... But think about our fellow brothers and sisters around the world. They're everywhere. You have the communist gorillas and the Ibu Sayyaf and in the Philippines, you have, you have the LRA in, in South Sudan, and, and then you have the Muslim North and up in Northern that beats up South. I mean, and, that, and then you got China and Vietnam and, and North Korea. And I mean, it just, you know, Burma, I mean, it just keeps going. So maybe it's that or maybe it's... Just, Maybe it's for us to wake up for what might be coming. I, I, I really, I, I honestly don't know. But I do know this. The early church was enjoying great success in Jerusalem. They were. Man, you started cha chapter 2 where the day of Pentecost happens. Man, they were, they were hammering it. They were having a great time. They had a little persecution. They got locked up. The apostles did a couple times. They got beaten that one time we read of in Acts 5. But for the most part, they were enjoying great fellowship and miracles and, you know, and, 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 and salvation of their fellow countrymen. But were they really being obedient to what Jesus had called them to do? The answer is not really. If you were to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after the resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, this is what Jesus told them. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And oh boy, they sure were. And in all Judea, mm, don't really read of that. And in Samaria, don't read of that at all. And to the end of the earth, non-existent. So they weren't really obeying what Jesus had called them to do. Their charge from Jesus was to go out and get it done. But did they? No, not until persecution broke out by the hands of at least one man named Saul of Tarsus when he came on the scene. So Acts 1.8 is where Jesus gave the, hey, get out and get it done. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. That's where it was. It's all the farther had made it out. But in, the, in this great persecution, it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, that's where they're supposed to be in the first place. And Samaria. Remember, Philip goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Except the apostles. So they stayed. But they don't really make it out to the uttermost parts of the earth yet. So it's possible. 
I ain't predicting anything, but it's possible that God will allow persecution to come to America to seek to wake up his bride in this country to get out and get the work done in these last days. I pray it happens. I really do. That the church would be persecuted here to where we would wake up. I mean, think about this. Where we're sitting right here, there are 10,000 high school kids 10 minutes away who have never heard the gospel. Most of them have never heard it. Unreached people group. And, I, and, I, and so I do. I, I don't know if God's going to do it. I, if, if, is the rapture going to happen? Boom. And all those high school kids, all those junior high kids, all these young people are old enough to know they're just going to be left behind. So I don't know. So I don't know what God's got to do, but certainly in the church in Jerusalem when persecution happened, they scattered like crazy, went out and did what they're supposed to do. So, you know, I don't know, but I do know this. We're supposed to be ready. Jesus tells us to be ready. And so that's why we're always telling you, today's the day to be living for Jesus because we don't know what's going to happen. Persecution, rapture, we got to be ready. The, the church in Smyrna is about 50 miles north of Ephesus. It's got a population, or it had a population of about 200,000. History doesn't tell us who planted the church there. So somebody went there. But we know it's a real church. We also know from history that after the church has lost sight of Jesus around 100 A.D. Think about that. Jesus is crucified 33, give or take a little bit, A.D. And by 100 A.D., the church has become so lukewarm. We saw in Ephesus, they've left their first love. And so what does God do? He allows intense persecution to come upon his bride and seeking to wake her up until about 312 A.D. And remember, as we go through the seven letters of these seven real churches found in these two chapters, that there are local applications to us as well. There is. You know, there's three applications to each of the seven individual letters. There's the local application, which means Jesus wrote this letter to a real church that he had John write to. There was a church in Smyrna that was heavily persecuted, like the church in the, around the rest of the world today. There's also a historic application to these seven churches. If you step back and look at the seven churches and look at what they're going through, and you look at church history. If you look at church history, you'll see that there are seven periods of church history represented by the state of each church in which Jesus has John write. Of course, only he could predict that. The first church, the church of Ephesus that we looked at last time, they were the church that they allowed their love for Jesus to grow cold because they, Jesus says, hey, you've left your first love. Remember from the height of which you've fallen. History testifies. That's what happened. As the apostles faded off the scene, the church became lukewarm. The next church, the church in Smyrna, represents an era in church history where the church was under intense persecution, and that continued to the second to the fourth generation through the Roman persecution. And, you know, the next church next week is, well, Rome decides they can't kill them, so let's join them, and that brings its own problems. But it's estimated that as many as six million Christians were martyred during this time from, from around 100 plus to the fourth, fourth century. It's crazy. Lastly, there's a present application for us. There's something here for us today. We can find these same conditions in the church today. Maybe not so much people being put to death here in America, but you certainly find that all around the world. So we know there are certain similarities in all the messages in all seven of these churches in these next two chapters for you and I. We also know that in every one of these letters that is written, there's a description of Jesus in the opening line. 
We see that in verse 8 this morning. We're going to talk about that. And that opening line description always has something to do with the church that he's writing to. And there's this declaration by Jesus to each church that he knows their works. And all seven times he says, I know your works, I know your works. Even as he knows yours this morning, he knows your works. He knows what they are. He sees them. They're recorded. And lastly, in each letter, there's a special blessing or a special promise to those who overcome. We see that in verse 11, and that's where we're going to end this morning. We're going to talk about being overcomers. It's critical. So that's kind of the outline. It's all said. Let's jump in. Look at verse 8 here. And to the angel of the church. Remember, the Greek word for angel here is also used by Jesus and Paul, like we looked at last time as the word messenger. James, the half-brother of Jesus, also uses the same Greek word angel. In James chapter 2, he uses that, word, that Greek word angel for messengers when he writes of Rahab the harlot when she received the messengers, you know, those two spies that she hit up on her roof. So, so we find very common that this word angel can also mean Messengers. So most believe that Jesus is writing to the pastors or the elders or the bishops in those churches. If you want to believe it's an angel, that's okay. But I can't imagine why Jesus has to rebuke an angel for not getting it right. I mean, I don't know how that could happen, but maybe you do. But um, So we believe that he's writing to the man that's in charge of that church, that God has established here. We know the local bishop at this time in Smyrna was Polycarp. We see that in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not a... It's not a divine book, but it's more of a historical book. He was a disciple around the time of the Apostle John, so he would have received this letter right from John that had been dictated to John from Jesus. History tells us he was martyred in about 166 AD, give or take a few, and he was around the age of 95 to 100. Again, depending on who you read, you know, the numbers are all right in there roughly, give or take a few. The government had planned to kill him by burning him at the stake because he was a believer, and he was the leader. And the executioner said, and again, there's various accounts, but there's a, there's a consistent thread through them, and I hope that's what this says. The executioner said, I hate to see old men die. Just recount Jesus Christ as your Lord, and we're going to let you go free. And you can live out the rest of your days in peace. I mean, okay, Jesus is my Lord. Okay, there you go. I mean, what's the big deal? That is a big deal. Polycarp said this, for over 80 years... I have served my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not once has he denied me. I shall not deny him at death. And it, and it says, it made the executioner so mad that he threw the fire to the, to the bundle of sticks because Polycarp was on a pole. And they went to tie his hands. He goes, you don't have to tie my hands because I'm not jumping off. And so as they lit the fire, the executioner says, this fire is going to be hot. And Polycarp says, not as hot as where you're going. I don't know if that's true. That's, that's in some of the accounts. doesn't really sound like God's man, but, it, you know, hey, I'll throw that out there. But we read, in, but in all the accounts, this is what it said. As they lit the fire, the fire came up like this and entombed him. Kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, who, we threw in three. Isn't there four people in the fire? You know that guy? And the executioner became enraged, it says, and he grabbed a spear and thrust him through, and his blood came out and put the fire out. Killed him. I know this, and I'll throw this in for free. 
Nobody spares suffering, including the leaders. You know, the apostles might have in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Not today. Now, as Jesus writes to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, the definition of the town really matches what's going on here. You see, Smyrna means myrrh. Boy, that sounds familiar. We three kings. Actually, it wasn't three kings, but remember what they're bringing? Or one was bringing gold, frankincense for the priest, and myrrh for his, his, his death, his burial. So here's a little trivia fact about myrrh. In order to have its potent fragrance released, it has to be crushed in order to give out its alluring fragrance. And certainly that's what's happening in the church at Smyrna. They're being crushed. And as they're being crushed, Jesus is writing to them, hey, stay tuned, stay put, and allow the alluring fragrance of Christ to flow out of your lives. Certainly Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. We know he is wounded for our transgression. So you could say, well, in a weird way, myrrh is kind of like garlic. This may be my cooking tip for you today. You know, you don't go to the store and buy this whole thing of garlic and throw it in the pot and you go, you know, my food doesn't taste like garlic. No, you have to unpeel it and you have to crush it. And so that's kind of what's happening here. If you're going to get the full effect, you got to crush it. Smyrna is a beautiful city today in western shore of Turkey. Ismir is the modern name. It also appeared to be a seaport like it was the city in Ephesus. Its loyalty to Rome was well known. It had a large Jewish population there. The city became the seat of emperor worship. Thus, it's why it was extremely hostile to the Jesus movement of its day. The church at Smyrna endured intense persecution, but in a real sense, this persecution yielded a sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ that flowed out from their lives. And so let me just cha- pause for a second and challenge all of us. So, you know, when something happens at work or something happens at school or something happens at home or in the neighborhood, and you're going, ah, listen, you're still alive. That's nothing. Stop that. Okay? Those things are nothing. You know, plus, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We know that. Why not, why not just die when that thing happens to you and allow the fragrance of Christ to flow out through you? I mean, that's God's heart. That's what he, that's what he wants for us. He wants us, yes, we, we'll travel through some tough times, maybe some tougher than others. But in order for the fragrance of Christ to come out, you got to be crushed. These believers there were crushed under intense persecution by the Roman rulers. Why? Because they loved Jesus. And thus they endured their wrath. But as they endured that wrath, that sweet smell drifted from their lives and literally impacted the then known world. So much so, and like I already said, the church, Rome decides to join it because it can't kill it. Yeah, because as they crushed it, it kept multiplying. Today, presently, this can happen to all of us as well as we live our our lives as Christians. But please understand this. The hand of God is always behind everything he calls us to endure. God will never, it's not not like, you know, uh, it's not like God goes, uh, what's happened to Avery? How come Avery's way over there? Where's the, no, God doesn't ever lose sight of anybody. Ever. And so he holds us. 
And whatever he allows in our lives, it's because he, he knows we can live through it and, and we can shine and let forth the fragrance of Jesus to flow from our hearts and from our lives in those times of trials that really it might impact all of those around us because let's face it, either that's flowing out of our lives or bitterness is. And I'll tell you what, bitterness isn't going to impact any, well, it will. It's going to impact people not to turn to Jesus. But see, as we do, as we allow the love of Jesus to radiate forth from our lives in these small things, and I, and I want to make light of them, but we're all still alive. So I think they're small things, no matter what it is. Loss of a child, brain surgery, cancer on my back. Those are all small things because I'm still alive. But as we allow the fragrance of Jesus to permeate out through our lives, it's attractive to sinners today. Certainly Jesus was attractive to sinners because the fragrance of Christ flowed out of his life. Tertullian, one of the early church leaders after the death of the apostles, said this about persecution. He insisted the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because as the blood would be spilt, they would, this, it would, you know, what he's saying is, it, is that persecution would happen, more would grow up in its place. And it's true. In other words, when the church is persecuted, that's when it grows. Certainly persecution thins out all the counterfeits in the ranks and makes room for real growth of faithful, joyful sheep. There's a story told, I don't know if it's true, that it was in the early church, a, a Roman uh, soldier comes in and says, I'm going to kill all the Christians. If you're, not, if you're not a Christian, get out of here because I'm going to kill everybody. And so people ran out. He closed the door and said, great, now we can worship. I, I don't know if it's true. It's a great story. Certainly if I was a believer and I was a Roman soldier, I'd do the same thing. You know, good, we got rid of all the counterfeits. Make sure you mark them so you know who they are when they come back. But uh, let's worship. But persecution cleans things up. That's why it's reported that the believers in China say, please, don't pray for persecution to be lifted from us. We've seen what's happened to the church in America and how it's become soft. Don't, don't pray for that to be lifted for us. But pray that we would have a presence here, that we would survive and thrive, and that our local countrymen would be saved. That's their heart. They want the persecution. They don't want it lifted up. Smyrna holds a special meaning to the Christian today regardless of your present circumstances because it has such great lessons for you and I. Jesus said this, that the world would be no friend to those who follow after him. Well, pastor, I have lots of friends in the world. Mm, you might want to rethink all that. Listen to this, John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, they don't really hate me. I know, you need to kind of figure that all out then. Remember the word that I said to you, this is still Jesus speaking, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Nobody gets a pass. It's going to happen. No matter. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. When, when you allow and start living and you live that way, and, and I'm hoping you already do, there's people that hate you. It's okay. It's just part of the walk. You, but we have to still love them. Today's the day to prepare one's heart for persecution that I might face tomorrow at work or from my own family or at school or, you know, maybe it's a neighbor. When we moved in here, we had a neighbor telling everybody we were a cult. So, hey, thanks for coming. 
her daughter started changing, and so it's like, ah, yeah, because she got saved. Hostility will come to all who desire to live a life pleasing to God. Jesus tells John here to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So a very fitting description of Jesus Christ, is it not, for these believers in, in Smyrna. The first title that he takes upon himself is the first and the last. What that means is he sees the first and the last, and he sees all of it all at the same time. I see everything you're going through all at the same time, Smyrna. And it's a good word for us today. I see everything you're going through all at the same time. Nothing gets outside of my control. I don't lose sight of anybody because I'm the beginning and the ending. I'm the alpha and I am the omega. I'm he who is, who was, who is to come. The eternal all at the same time. And that's a comforting thought to know when I'm being persecuted for my faith in Christ. It is. You know, because it's like, wow, I'm being hammered right now. Oh, yeah, but Jesus sees you know, that's good enough. That should be good enough. The other reason this title that Jesus gives himself in this introduction is fitting to, is because so many Christians were being martyred. And now Jesus is reminding them of his own personal triumph over the death. Look what it says. I was dead, but I came to life. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you're going to live also. And so he's giving them courage and strength for the tribulation and death that they were facing in their own lives because he knew that what was going on in their lives and he's not asking them to do anything he hadn't already done. Okay, I mean, that's the cool thing about our Jesus. He never asks us to do anything he hasn't already done. You know, I mean, he died for us. He's going, hey, can you die for me? I already died for everybody else. I mean, just be a witness for me. Look at the first two words in verse 9 here. See it? I know. I hope we can all take comfort in that this morning. I mean, if Jesus knows, isn't that good enough? Man, do you see what they're saying to me at school? Hey, no, it's okay. Jesus knows. I mean, it, the Bible says every idle word is already recorded. And, and people will give a day of an, and they're going to give an answer for it. See, we don't have to worry about it. Jesus does indeed know everything you'll ever face, church. He says this morning, I know. I was betrayed also. He says, I know. I was beaten also. I know. I was rejected also. Yes, I know. All of my followers abandoned me in my hour of need. So I know. You know, whatever we go through, I know, Jesus says. I've traveled down that path before. And so as these Christians were being put to death and tortured, Jesus not only says he knows, but he also understands, again, by saying, look, I am he who was dead and I came to life. I, I know, I've experienced it. And then he, he says, look, I know your works. I know your job performance. That's what the word really means. I, I know your work performance. He knows us. He knows our work performance. Jesus knows all about their works and their tribulation. This word tribulation here means to crush or press, compress, or squeeze. Any farmers? City slickers. <laughs> so so if, if the vet comes on the farm, first of all, you got to get all the cows into a 
big area. Then you start moving them into a smaller area. Then you start moving them into a smaller area. And then you get them to where you can get them one single file. And you push them in here. And there's a chute right here. It doesn't look, it just looks like they're walking all the way through. But they get there. You throw the boards down. They can't go back or forward. And then you got these clamps. And you boom, clamp them suckers down on the sides. Now you can give them a shot without getting kicked. That's what this word means. To crush, to press, to compress, or squeeze. Man, there's pressure on them so they can't get after you. This tribulation is pressure from without. Next week, it's going to be pressure from within when Rome joins the church. You see, and this might be shocking to some of you, Christians are asked by God to submit to governmental authorities who are unbelievers. So if you find yourself talking about the government and stuff, you might want to go read Romans chapter 13 because you might have to do a little repenting there. You know, well, you know, God, no, God puts every president into position. God puts every, you know, leader around the world into position because he's got a plan. We just don't see it, but we can read about it. Now, he's asking us to submit up to a point. We don't have to obey that which clearly violates the revealed will of God. We don't have to. Matter of fact, we shouldn't. But know this, when we don't submit to something that violates the will of God, or sorry, yeah, yeah, that's right. When we don't submit to something that violates the will of God, we're going to face persecution for it. That's okay. You know, I'm, I'm going to always do what's pleasing to Jesus, even if I'm going to get persecuted for it. I'm certainly not, not going to do what's pleasing to the government to avoid that. But at the same time, I need to submit to, submit to governing authorities. And Jesus is telling them here, look, I know this. And I like the fact that Jesus knows. Because for me, and hopefully for you, nothing else matters if Jesus knows. Man, did you see that, Lord? Yeah, okay, good. And I, for me, I, just, I can just let it all go. You know, kind of like the song, let it go. <laughs> let it go. But you have to, you only let it go if you know Jesus sees. Otherwise, you've got to hold on to it. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. No, you get bitter. You get bitter. So not only tribulation does Jesus know, but he also knows their poverty. And certainly persecution and poverty towards the church are always tied together like war and famine in this world. The word poverty that Jesus uses here is not only poor or want. This word indicates complete helplessness. The, the word can also be translated as a beggar. I mean, that's, the, that's how desperate they, they were. The political climate of the day was so ungodly and so powerful. If, if Joey, Joe Jewish Jeffy got saved, they'd come and take his house and take his business. They would take it all away and you had nothing. You're left to beg. Yet in the midst of this severe poverty, Jesus says, look at what it says. It says they are they're rich. Now, in this earthly realm we live in, that makes no sense. But when you look up, you realize all that you've done for Christ is stored away in his, in his bank. So they might be, have been the poorest, but their way was right because Jesus corrects them in nothing. Remember last week that Jesus corrected them in the church of Ephesus? Not here. Now, when we get to church number seven, though, the La church of the Laodiceans, they are boasting about being rich, but Jesus says they are poor. And here in Smyrna, they are poor, and yet Jesus is bragging that they're rich. I hope we all know that God's way of viewing things and the world's way of viewing things are totally 
different. Jesus says to them, don't look at what was taken from you, but rather look at what you've gained that's awaiting you in heaven. And so Jesus knew all the blasphemy that these in Smyrna were enduring. The Greek word for blasphemy here is blasphema. This is the verbal torture that Rome was inflicting on the Christians at this time. This kind of abuse would wound someone's reputation by evil reports and evil false speaking. And we live in a world full of this type of abuse today. So how are we to live? How are we to be when this happens to us, church? I mean, because, hey, this is Smyrna. This is a long time ago. Hold your spot here. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Go back about five or six pages. We're gonna, and then we're going to come back to 1 Peter, so you might want to hold your finger there, too. 1 Peter chapter 2. You can read the whole book of 1 Peter in about 10, 15 minutes if you want to know how the church is supposed to respond to suffering, because really it's a suffering Christian. But look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is commendable. This is what God says to you and me. For this is commendable if... And it's conditional. If because of conscience towards God, one, endear, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. That's commendable. For what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? So you get no credit for doing something wrong, you get beaten for it. Or job demotion or whatever. But when you do good, and suffer, can't we like just skip it? No, you got, we got to read it. But when you do good and suffer, if, a lot of ifs here, if you take it patiently, then this is commendable before God. For to this, before you go, well, that's not fair. Go, Wait a second, it gets worse. For to this, you were called Christian. Why? Here it is. Because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow who's his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Of course, we've, we're guilty of all of that. Who, when, in, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. We're all guilty. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh, yeah, we're guilty there too. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously, and thus, you know, Jesus was God. He wasn't going to answer back anyway. But that, this is where you and I got to hang out. We got to commit ourselves to the one who's going to judge righteously so we can just love. And th th this is all New Testament stuff here. This is how you and I are to handle it. Patiently, quietly, dependently upon Jesus to deal with it. Next, Jesus says to them, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He knew all about the Jews that were hassling them. That's what Jesus is saying. He also reminds them that, that there's someone behind the scenes that is directing these Jews. And he speaks here of the unbelieving Jews of Asia Minor who were causing trouble towards the church in those regions. So when we read here, synagogue of Satan in verse 9, Yes, it was a very real Jewish synagogue, but the people inside who were claiming to be Jewish worshipers of God, you know, Jesus says, no, not by their actions. And so they had their synagogue, but Jesus says, no, it was a synagogue of Satan. It was driven by Satan. Again, if you're still in 1 Peter chapter 5 this time, verse 8, let me read to you about this Satan, this devil that hassles us. Words to you and I, the church, be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So please know that Satan is the one attacking believers today. Jesus knows we don't battle against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. Now, even though Satan is attacking, God is in ultimate control, and we need to remember that. God only allows Satan to go so far if he's given that opportunity. And many times he probably isn't. If you need to understand what that looks like, go read the first two chapters of Job to see how crazy he is when God gives him the opportunity. But from God's vantage point, persecution has always purified his church. And as we move on, please notice that Jesus, again, has nothing bad to say about this church. There's no need for repentance. There's nothing for them to turn away from. There's nothing for them to turn back to. There's nothing like that at all. Why? Because persecution in the church does not make fat, lazy sheep, but it makes faithful, joyful sheep under the death. Look what happened in Acts chapter 8 when the persecution hit the church in Jerusalem. Boom, they were obedient, went out and did what they needed to do. So again, do I want to see persecution come here? No, I just want to see the rapture happen. But would I like to see a bunch of young people here get saved? Yeah, I would. So I don't know what it's going to take, but it's going to take something. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. And no doubt, these people were living in a state of constant fear because that's not really how it reads. What, what Jesus is saying here is saying, he's saying to them, stop fearing. That's what the actual word means. Fear not, stop fearing. It's present tense, so he's telling, look, all the time, stop this. And it's in the imperative mood, which is always a command, as it's imperative that you obey here. So stop fearing all the time, right now, as a command from Jesus in his word to these in Smyrna. And it's the same for you and I, I guess, if we are fearful about things. You know, on a side note, fear is going to drive out faith every single time. And yet we need fear. Or, sorry. <laughs> we need faith to walk with God today. The Lord God tells the prophet Isaiah, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will withhold, uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus knows so clearly that fear will drive out our faith every single time. And yet without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's critical. We don't want to live in that, in that, in that space, you know? you know? And yet the reality is Jesus is quick to wipe out fear every time we look up. Because see, right now I can look at you, Pepe. Now I don't see you. That's all you got to do. You got to look up. All of a sudden you're fearful. Look up. Oh, yeah, Jesus, you got everything under control. He can meet any need in your life. He's your Savior. He's your Master. He's your Lord. Let me encourage any of us with this. If you have not suffered for the Lord, don't worry. You will if you're a believer. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, as Paul seeks to encourage Timmy just before he's beheaded, this is what he says. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Tim. Well, I haven't, Pastor. Well, you might want to get in the game. That's the way it is. Persecution is part of the package, team. If someone didn't tell you that when you came to faith in Christ, they ripped you off. They should have. 
Oh, by the way, now if you pray to receive Jesus, yeah, uh, life doesn't always get better. Actually, it gets harder because before you used to do whatever you wanted to do. But now all of a sudden you're going to go out and tell people, hey, this is the only way. And people don't want to hear it. They're not going to like you anymore. That's okay. We got a big family. We got a bride of Christ all around the world. Persecution, it's part of the deal. The, the world hates God and the forgiveness that he offers. They hate genuine love and they hate sacrifice. They hate obedience but they love their sin. And yet, simply put, the world hates everything of God. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. He's going to try and make you sin, namely deny Jesus as Lord. You're going to be tested here, okay? And certainly we are as well. One crucial thought to always keep in mind in those moments of testing is, again, is that God is still on the throne. He hasn't lost sight of you. He hasn't. He hasn't got you mixed up with the guy down the street. He hasn't. We're all going to be tested. And here Jesus tells him, you're going to have tribulation 10 days. So why 10 days? I have no idea. Is it literal 10 days? I think so. Could it be 10 years? Others think that. Is it 10 kingdoms? Yeah, that's what they say. So for us, there's all these viewpoints. We're just going to leave it at 10 days. Simple don't have to go through this big thing. Well, it's not really 10 kings. It's because it's eight and a half kings because it's a year later. And it's like, well, no, then it should be nine. And it's like, whatever. So we're just going to leave it at eight day, at 10 days or a short time period that has an ending. I think that's a better explanation here. Jesus says, look, you're going to be in prison. There's an end to it. There is. It's 10 days. Now, if you get out at nine, you're going to go, wow, praise the Lord. I got out a day early. You get out at eight. But there's an end to it. And so, hey, if you get locked up, you got to know this. There's an end. God's love for us declares that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond more than we're able to handle. I hope we all know that. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days. Look at these next words. Critical. Be faithful unto death. Faithful is God's reward system. Faithful is what levels the playing field for all of us. Faithful is a matter of free choice. Faithful is what Jesus challenges all of us who are his to be and be about. And it says faithful unto death. So we have nothing to lose because our home is not in this world. Amen? It's not. But we have everything to gain by being faithful in his kingdom. And yet the church, like so many believers around the world, they had already lost everything. The only thing they had left to lose was death. And Jesus is saying, look, be faithful into death. And so this applies to all of us because we're all still alive. So be faithful into death. Don't fear death, Jesus says. Be faithful unto death. And this is what you're going to get. I will give you the crown of life, church, in Smyrna. Why? Jesus says, because you're my winners. This is the Stephanos crown. It's not a crown that a king would wear but rather one that you would receive if you were in the Olympic Games and you win, or maybe today you get a trophy. Not a participation trophy. You actually have to win to get this trophy. But the, the crown was, that, you know, the Stephanus crown was various branches that would fade in time. Uh, that's not the one that Jesus has given. He is going to give us the crown of life if you are faithful unto death. Now, what's that going to look like? I have no idea. But I'm looking forward to either Jesus putting it on my head or putting it in my hand because as we go through this book, it says the saints there have crowns and they get to wing him at Jesus. Now, I don't even know what that looks like. 
But I know this. I don't want to be standing there going, wow, that looks really fun. Wow, that was, wow are you enjoying that? Great. Because you're not going to feel like, you're not going to know you don't have any, but you're going to watch everybody else throw them. Wow, that's cool. And there's a list of crowns. We'll see them as we go through here. But you want one. God will provide you a crown if you will remain faithful to him in sufferings and persecution. Not perfect, but faithful. Jesus has been nothing but faithful to every single one of us in this room. And that's all he's asking for back from us. Verse 11, touch your ears. He who has an ear. So Jesus isn't talking to a building. The church is not a building. He's talking to you and I that make up his church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of God is speaking this morning. So what is he speaking to you? I don't know, only you can answer that. He who overcomes, and God's heart is that we would overcome the persecution and tribulation that we face as believers, and that we would not, and that those things would not overcome us. So he who overcomes, we've got it, you got to be an overcomer here. If you, if you don't get anything, you got to get this. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And that should cause every person in here to ask the age-old question, so what's the second death? Well, we don't have to go write a book on it. We just got to fast forward to the end of the movie and check it out for ourselves. Flip ahead to Revelation chapter 20. And Jesus tells us what the, what the second death is, and you do not want to be found here, okay? I just tell you that right up front. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the, say it, second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is where death and Hades is, and that is not where you want to be found because that's where the devil ends up. The book of life records the names of all who have turned from their sins and believed in who Jesus is and what he did. Or to kind of bring it closer to home, if you found yourself in the middle of Lake Conroe drowning and Jesus was the only boat on the lake and he was saying, look, turn to me and I will grab you and I will save you and I'll pull you out of the water and you'll be saved. He thought, well, I'm a sinner, and yeah, okay, the only way, yep. And as you turn, he reached out and grabbed you and pulled you onto his boat because the reason you turn is because you knew in your heart that he was the only way to be saved. There wasn't any, there's not a fourth way, a second way, a third way. And as he pulled you, because in your heart, as you're looking to him, you said, yes, this is the way. Yes, Lord, you be the Lord. I don't want to be Lord no more. And as he pulled you, your name got written in the book of life. Either that or it's already in there, and that's another theological debate for another day. But if you're not abiding with Jesus in this new life in Christ, you may, your name may not be in, the, be in the book. It's as simple as that. But it could be in the book if you turn your heart towards Jesus. Otherwise, you're going to be cast in the lake of fire with death, Hades, the devil, and his false trinity. There's nothing good there. For what? A few passing moments of pleasure on this earth? Pastor Chuck would like to say, put it this way. If you're born twice, physical birth and spiritual birth, you'll only die once unless the rapture takes place and you won't die at all. But if you're only born once, you will die twice. 
both the physical death of this outer body and the eternal death separated from the Lord God for all of eternity in this lake of fire. Those are the two options. It's not three. So have you made that faithful commitment to Jesus Christ? What happens to you at the end of your life? It's two choices. It's heaven and there's the lake of fire. And are, and are you secure in that? Are you secure in that? How are, you, how are you allowing yourself to be crushed by others that the world might see Jesus in you? I don't know. Only you can answer that. Will you receive the crown of life? I hope so. People will get in without it. But you got to be in the book. The only thing that Jesus guarantees us is that he'll give a crown to all who are faithful to the end. He doesn't guarantee prosperity. He doesn't guarantee good health or easy living. But he does personally guarantee eternal life. He does. And he, and he promises us to be with us through everything we'll ever face. So this morning, if you'll respond to his gentle pull on your heart to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus, believing in what he has accomplished for you and what he accomplished for you at the cross and what he accomplished through you at the grave and what he accomplished for you at the resurrection as he rose again from the dead. If you've never turned to him and asked him to be the Lord of your life because of what he's accomplished for you, your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But it can be. You just have to make the choice. And my encouragement to you is if you know you're outside, you got to respond to the Spirit of God this morning. you got to act upon it. And you got to say yes. you got to be faithful to the end, team. All of us do. The promise here is, is that Jesus will give life to those who make it to the finish line. You don't get no credit if you quit. you got to run. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 9, run in such a way in which you win. That's how we got to be running today. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. 